Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome, everyone. We appreciate you taking the time to be with us here today. My name is Catherine Pasqualone, and I'm a client advisor within J.P. Morgan's North America institutional business. I am delighted to be joined by two of my colleagues, Bob Culver and Kevin Bedell from Security Capital Research and Management. For those of you who don't know the team, Security Capital is J.P. Morgan's boutique, all-tranche, and targeted REIT group based in Chicago. So Kevin and Bob are both lifelong investors in both real estate and REITs. Kevin is a co-founder of Security Capital, head of company and market research, and a member of Security Capital's portfolio management team. Bob is head of new strategies and client service and began his career in direct real estate in the mid-80s. So, Kevin, Bob, thank you both for joining us. Thanks thank for you. having me. Absolutely. So, we're going to be discussing what's going on in the REIT market. Like many aspects of the capital markets, it has certainly been an interesting year. So, with that, Bob, I know we heard from your team in June, but can you talk to us about what's changed in the REIT market since then? Sure. Thanks, Catherine. Yeah, this is a follow-up to that call on June 17th. We've had that titled The State of the REIT Market. That's available as a podcast on the J.P. Morgan Center for Investment Excellence channel, and you can access that on iTunes and Google Play. So I'd encourage today's listeners to listen to that playback for more background on security capital and our all-tranche and targeted investment approach, which is so well-suited for the current environment. Many of the market themes, risks, and opportunities we discussed then continue today. And certainly Kevin Bedell, my colleague, is going to talk about that more in a moment. Certainly now we have greater perspective and clarity, so an update is appropriate. Since we spoke in June, the REIT market is up about 5%, and real estate property sector performance remains highly dispersed. As in June, we continue to identify opportunities, and for those interested in these opportunities, we continue to advocate for active investment. It's really critical now to understand the companies in the most granular way possible, one by one, property by property, understanding balance sheets, maturities, tenant turnovers, cash flow management teams. This is what we always do, but now understanding shifting demand patterns is critical to determining future value and deeply understanding companies is critical to assess the company's ability to get to this future. This is not a time to index. This is a time to invest with conviction and highly targeted portfolios and to consider cash and senior securities and returning capital when opportunities abate. Experience is also important. Long tenure is really critical now. Certainly, a history of working together as a team has been very helpful as we work remotely in the pandemic, but also the experience of having navigated other challenging markets as a team backed by the resources of J.P. Morgan. We have managed through 9-11, the GFC, this experience and discipline and valuation concerns led us to return over a billion dollars of capital to clients pre-GFC and similarly led us to pre-COVID positioning with 40% cash and in our multi-trust strategies over weights to more conservative REIT preferreds and REIT debt. All of this is driven by fundamental research. These qualities have served us well in the past and are certainly doing so again now. Our 800 to 1,300 basis points of excess return suggest this is all working. Since June, we have continued to reposition separate account guidelines and strategies for existing clients. We've also been entrusted 
to manage new capital. Interestingly, all of these investors are targeting return-seeking strategies, focusing on offense, certainly maintaining an awareness of risk, but asking us to take advantage of the price volatility and identifying opportunities driven by fundamental research. Together, these new and repositioned mandates total nearly a billion dollars year-to-date out of our total $4 billion UN. Back to you, Catherine. Great. Thanks, Bob. And I know we're going to get into how we think about positioning today within portfolios later on in the discussion. But before we do that, Kevin, maybe you can give us an update on REIT performance and contrast that with both private market valuations as well as performance during the GFC. Great. Thanks, Catherine, for hosting us today. I'm happy to be speaking with all of you, and I hope all are well. To your question, as always, the public markets respond to change with speed and emotion. They're always forward-looking. They're often prescient, but sometimes they're just emotional. As of Friday, the overall REIT market is measured by the Wilshire Real Estate Securities Index, which is U.S. common, is off about 17% for the COVID period, which began February 21, or about 11.6% year-to-date. This is off a bottom of 40% down in mid-March, so the rebound has been pronounced as it's been in the broader equity market. A couple of observations. First, 161 days into COVID, this is a lot better experience than the GFC when the REIT market bottomed out almost down 70%. A couple of reasons for this. Balance sheets are a lot better. Not only is debt lower, but we have interest rates that are a fraction of what they were, which serves to magnify coverage. Credit markets with very aggressive early action by the Fed are highly accommodative. And the property mix in the public markets has migrated over time, and we have a lot more property segments oriented towards growth areas of the economy that are actually doing okay. Second overall point is very little movement so far in the private market indicators. As is usually the case in major disruptions, price discovery is virtually non-existent in private real estate markets for some time. As of the second quarter numbers, Odyssey total return is modestly negative for the year as appraisers fly largely blind without transactions. This compares to the, the, the Odyssey being off over 20, 25% at this stage during the GFC. So public and private real estate markets are both doing a lot better this time around, and the functioning credit markets are the major factor there. Uh, we now await additional info with the third quarter release of Odyssey results, which can be expected any day. Finally, within REITs, as Bob indicated, there's a substantial amount of performance dispersion, both across and within property types. Uh, for example, relative to the overall market since COVID started of down 16.7%, the traditional core property segments as reweighted to reflect Odyssey weights are down about 700 basis points more, or 24% since that period. Broad brush, retail, hotel, office are down in the 30 to 50% range year to date as compared to industrial data, single family rental, which are all in, in positive territory. Catherine? Great. Thanks, Kevin. I think that's a really good description of kind of what's going on and some of the market dynamics taking place. So maybe if we could take a bit of a layer deeper, can you help us to understand the landscape in terms of significant property type trends? Sure. I think I can safely say that the U.S. real estate landscape is transforming more rapidly today than at any time over 
very long careers that we've had in the business. Traditional bedrock property segments like office, retail, residential, and lodging face stiff obsolescence headwinds. The geographic hierarchy of cities is shifting, both between cities as well as within them, and we've got entirely new property segments emerging to support the new realities and demands of a very different economy. Now, the pandemic didn't really create this transformation, but it has served as a powerful catalyst. The real drivers are rooted in technology, in demographics, and in urban stresses, both fiscal and social. And the impact of these forces are both interactive and reinforcing. I really want to say that again because it's so important. Technology, demographic, and urban stresses together are driving a wave of change and obsolescence in real estate, the likes of which we've never seen. Technology decimate brick-and-mortar retail business models over the last several years while driving unprecedented growth in industrial logistics. For many retailers, large and small, often saddled with debt and legacy storefront formats, pandemic-related shutdowns have been really the last straw. Now we see mandated work at home, demonstrating for employers and their workforce the value and convenience of working from anywhere. Maybe not everyone and not always, but enough to meaningful impact the office business moving forward. Demographics is another huge force now channeled and shaped by the pandemic. The peak demographic age in the U.S. is now 29. Many are married, starting families, holding on to an experiential urban lifestyle that favors renting close to work. For this cohort, the move to suburbia was probably already on the radar screen, but not pressing until the pandemic really transformed urban living from a paradise to a jail cell. The millennial workforce is in demand by employers, and like they have with online shopping, millennials will embrace the flexibility and lifestyle benefits of work-from-anywhere capabilities. And finally, we haven't even begun to see the fiscal fallout from the pandemic on cities, particularly large, older urban markets like New York or Chicago already reeling from aging infrastructure, crime, weak public schools, stressed budgets, older urban centers may present a very different cost-benefit proposition for businesses and employees moving forward in contrast to the urban golden age of the last decade. Now, all these forces drive demand for technological infrastructure, things like data centers and cell towers, demand for industrial logistics, and for what I'd call lifestyle transitional real estate segments, like self-storage and single-family rental housing. Nor are the signs of this transformation clearer than in the public real estate markets. Over the last five years, for example, retail real estate has fallen as a percentage of the U.S. Common Equity Index from about 24% to about 8%. Over the same period, warehouse, industrial, and data centers have grown from a combined 106 percent of the index to over 30% today. Traditional core real estate segments comprise 50% or less of the public indices. So we're really seeing this change, which is akin to what we're seeing in the broader equity markets with tech really eclipsing so many other areas. As investors, we need to understand these trends, chart their progress as we underwrite the future in our cash flow models. That makes a lot of sense, and some of those statistics are very staggering. So I guess given the dynamics that you just laid out, can you talk to us about how security capital is navigating this transformation from an investment standpoint? Sure. 
a colleague of ours often observes three factors that shape our sense of opportunity. He's always saying it's supply, demand, and price. And this is the same whether one is buying a property in the private market or investing in a public security representing a portfolio of real estate. The important distinction in the public markets is that price can play a much bigger role because it moves around a lot. Six and a half hours a day, five days a week, 300 days a year. And this price volatility is magnified by the active role played by non-real estate investors in public markets. Think hedge funds, opportunity funds, index funds. You've got Japanese dividend investors. And not only their large footprint as investors in the REIT market, but also their ability to employ derivative strategies, shorting, for example, which can be a major force today. This is an important dimension of public real estate markets to recognize because it necessarily shapes investment strategy. A dynamic allocation to the market, one that moves up some periods and down in other periods, and the ability to concentrate holdings are two key elements that can materially drive performance when investing in REITs. But both are often overlooked in the traditional mandate, fully invested, diversified, index-relative approach. So by embracing this approach in our strategies, we've effectively started COVID period already on second base in our targeted and multi-tron strategies. We had 40% of our clients' capital in cash or senior securities, as Bob mentioned, and our investment positions were concentrated in life science, SFR, data centers, and self-storage. And in our targeted strategies, we held no investments in retail, healthcare, or hotels. So let me take a minute and put the supply, demand, price, paradigm to work in the context of how we're seeing the real estate investment landscape today. Among the 12 to 15 property segments, we view that there's really three flavors or buckets on the supply, demand, price spectrum. Let me talk about each. Bucket one are the haves. These are property segments where the supply, demand profile is strong, where cash flow outlook is visible, transparent, growing, but where pricing is not really dislocated. We would include data, industrial, life science, and single-family rental in this category. Now, I'll note that just because these companies aren't dislocated doesn't mean that there's not great value opportunities in bucket one. Spending just a minute on the single-family rental business, for example, the value proposition has two important drivers. One is demographics, and the other is industry fragmentation. The demographic argument is straightforward. Millennials are starting families, they're thinking about schools, they're less enamored with urban life, but may not yet have the means to buy a home, or may just prefer the mobility of renting. But the industry fragmentation argument is equally compelling. Single-family rental is 13% of the total U.S. housing market. That's homes, apartments, and everything in the denominator. But until the housing bust, there was little, if any, institutional role in the business. The opportunity to bring scale efficiencies, professional management, purpose-built product for the first time to this huge part of the U.S. housing market is an important part of what's happening in this business. And some of the early movers and some of the scale players are in the public market. Now, shifting to the other side of the equation, bucket three includes property segments that face serious structural headwinds impacting demand, where pricing has been hugely dislocated but where forward cash flow visibility, so key to underwriting, is almost non-existent. Here we would include hotels, malls, and shopping centers. There can be a mirage of value for these segments, but the road to realization is treacherous. 
So today, we believe, as an example, that public hotel portfolios are implicitly trading at about 50% of replacement cost. Sounds attractive. But with negative cash flow and operating under short-term forbearance agreements from lenders, value can really be a mirage. We believe the next round of forbearance discussions in 2021 will focus on the companies being over-leveraged after surviving a burn rate environment, and new capital may prove dilutive to existing owners. We recently feasted on a new perpetual preferred offering for one of the hotel REITs, priced at 8.25%. We saw this as rehabilitation capital and view the risk-reward as more palatable than equity. If hotels recover, we'll earn 15-plus percent, but if not, and we're senior in the capital stack with a significant coupon. We expect to see more of this sort of hybrid issuance among the bucket three companies. And this is the only way we can really make sense of the risk reward of this segment of the real estate market today in the public markets. Just a brief word on malls. We're all familiar with the headwinds this format faces, but there really is a difference with premier venues, you know, a North Park in Dallas or a Valley Fair or a King of Prussia outside Philadelphia. These venues will require capital to repurpose boxes and fend off competition, but they are a different species than the traditional mall that so often comes to mind in these discussions. And then finally, to bring it to the center, bucket two is where things get interesting. This group includes office and apartments in the main They face notable structural headwinds, technology, demographics, geography, and they present dislocated pricing. But importantly, forward cash flow, while not necessarily growing, is fairly visible and transparent. This is the group where a 0.7 treasury and leverageable cash flow could be highly relevant in thinking about value, particularly for private capital looking for opportunities. Today, we're viewing apartments as the most investable in this group, since there are still so many unknowns that we see in the office business. High-quality apartment portfolios are trading in the mid-fives NOI cap rates in the public market versus odyssey valuations in the low fours and gross asset values probably somewhere in the middle, but hard to know yet. Translate this discount to a leveraged net figure, and there's lots of room for a profitable public-private arbitrage among the apartment companies. This spread is even wider for high-quality office, which is intriguing and keeps us very focused. But as I mentioned, there are still so many unknowns in that business, it's difficult to jump. Thanks, Kevin. Sounds like a lot of different things happening within the market, a lot of themes that we've definitely heard across different investment teams here at J.P. Morgan. So I think if you can, just talk to us a little bit about your investment posture today, given some of the points you laid out earlier. Yes. Our targeted dynamic strategies, which probably reflect the edgiest part of our nervous system, have pulled back investment levels to 75 to 80% after the substantial rebound in pricing we've seen from the bottoms. With our investments concentrated entirely in bucket one and increasingly in bucket two, but with really only minor preferred holdings in the bucket three area, Our cash flow models in aggregate suggest that market-wide pricing is fair to full. The strongest bull case comes from the huge pricing and performance spread to Odyssey for the traditional property segments. That's a very powerful ARB if one can execute, though you still might not make money in rates. It's hard to know. 
There's also a positive signal on leveraged expected returns. The power of a 2% borrowing really can't be overstated. So those are two things that jump out on the bullish side. The more bearish perspectives relate to more traditional pricing indicators, multiples, cash yields, unleveraged expected returns. All of those are modestly adverse. Bottom line, we see the market price to deliver unleveraged returns of about 6% per annum on a five-year horizon. Obviously, with a lot of volatility around that target, period to period, that sounds attractive, but it's nominally less than our underwriting would suggest is required. For preferreds and debt, debt spreads have fully acclimated to the reality of the new 0.7 Treasury, so we really don't see much opportunity there. Preferreds, on the other hand, have been highly attractive as they continue to rebound from significant dislocation that was experienced early in the year. We see the opportunity in preferreds transitioning from mispricing of existing issues to widespreads on a new wave of issuance that we're beginning to see the signs but really hasn't yet fully occurred in mass among the bucket three companies. So, Kevin, one of the things that you teased earlier was a point on malls. And I know you mentioned that there's a lot of differentiation between the high quality and some of the lower quality areas. So, if you could just spend a moment expanding on your views in the retail space first, and then maybe a point on the office as well. Great. You know, I sometimes kind of muse that it's unfortunate that when we have one word to describe these formats, it's mall, and it gets applied to everything, and yet it's increasingly not very descriptive. I think what emerged out of the fog several years back, and it was probably five or six years ago with the Talisman sale of their portfolio to Starwood, was a recognition that there was a massive bifurcation occurring. And you know, as long as I've been in the business, people have said, oh, the mall business is bifurcated. But this was very different. And the first thing that comes to mind is when Restoration Hardware decided to say, we're omni-channel, we're going to have one store at the best mall or the best location, and then we'll serve the market online or through catalogs. And that began a process within the mall business of there being only one mall that could really survive in a traditional format in a trade area. And a trade area is pretty big, call it, you know, 10-mile radius and that everyone else was going to have to find another way to survive. So a lot of what we're observing in the mall business is that activity playing out. You know, if you look at suburban Philly, King of Prussia is going to be fine. They've got anchors that will go dark. They'll have to repurpose them. They'll put in different uses and so forth. But at the end, that will be a dominant location. Plymouth Meeting, on the other hand, a smaller mall with great demographics, but in the shadow of King of Prussia, isn't going to be the best mall. And therefore, they'll lose their anchors. They spend all their time repositioning. They put in a grocery store, a kid's Legoland. And so, so much of what we see playing out has multiple dimensions. Certainly, there's the apparel focus that's troubling. There's the COVID-related challenges to the replacement anchors, you know, health clubs, movie theaters, entertainment. But, you know, if we can make it through this fog, I think the dominant formats, these venues that are North Park and Dallas always comes to mind. I've got family down there and there's just no issue there whatsoever. But, you know, the Galleria a few miles away, different story. Valley View is gone, bulldozed. 
So I think the mall business and people will chuckle, but Ricky Bobby's father in the great movie said it. He said, Ricky, if you're not first, you're last. And I think that's true in the mall business today as well. The only thing I'd say apart from that is one of the big issues with the mall business is the owner of the real estate doesn't own the real estate. The business model grew up where it was a partnership between an owner of inline space and essentially owners or long-term controllers of department stores. Now, the department stores, who knows how many will survive, but one of the huge challenges that a lot of malls face is regaining control of their real estate, and that takes money and creativity. And the recent activity of Simon and Brookfield to take control of J.C. Penny, I don't think it was in the interest of repurposing that business and so forth as much as it was to make sure that an interloper didn't come in and take control of that real estate and then shake them down for it moving forward. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. On behalf of Kevin, Bob, and the broader J.P. Morgan team, I hope you all enjoyed today's call and we want to thank you for your partnership. institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only not for retail use or distribution not for retail distribution this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only as defined by local laws and regulations the views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction nor is it a commitment from jp Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase and Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am dot jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy this communication is issued by the following entities in the united states by jp morgan investment management inc or jp morgan alternative asset management inc both regulated by the securities and exchange commission in latin america for intended recipients use only by local jp morgan entities as the case may be in canada for institutional clients use only by jp morgan asset management canada inc 
which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave RL, in Asia-Pacific, APAC by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg. No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.